You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, good morning, everyone. It's already been a, uh, a fun morning. Uh, anytime you can bring up the kids up on the stage, you kind of have like a, a really good, good day. So anyways, if you are visiting with us, again, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, I introduced myself earlier, but there was only like a third of y'all here whenever the service was starting. No shame, just stating a fact. But um, so if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Jake. I'm lead pastor here at Midtown Church. So glad you're here. Again, you picked a great Sunday to be here because kids are cute and because it's Palm Sunday and because we're kicking off a brand new sermon series today that you can see is we're calling Resurrection Hope. And in this series, uh, we're going to look at why the resurrection matters, why it matters to you. And the uh, main reason that it matters, I'll just give it to you right as we get going, the, re- the main reason it matters is because if Jesus rose again, then we can know that things are going to get better. Things are going to get better. If, if Jesus was resurrection, resurrected, then we have a reason to hope that everything is going to be okay. Really better than okay. But we have a reason for that hope. And when I say hope, I don't mean just like that wish upon a star, you know, kind of hope, or like, I hope it happens, but I don't think it really will kind of happen. No, I'm talking about a hope in a biblical sense. Then in the, in the Bible, the Greek for the word hope is elpida, and it means uh, assured or certain or I know that I know that I know that something in the future is going to happen. Certain anticipation. See, uh, in 1 Peter 1, verse, uh, verse 3, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. There's our word through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And friends, what that is saying is that God has given all who are in Christ, all who, as Jesus would say in John 3, are born again. You're born into a living and a assured anticipation of a renewed future through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, if Jesus rose again, then it means that you who are in Christ can have hope you can be certain that everything is going to be all right. And God wants all of us to have that hope. Uh, he, uh, he wants all of us to have that certainty, that confidence that things are going to be good. And that's why if you're here today and you are uh, exploring faith in Christ, if you're not sure what you believe but you're checking this out, we just want you to know we love that you're here and that we're a safe group to be able to ask questions around, that you aren't going to offend us if you come out that you don't believe what we believe or you're not sure about it. We, we've all been there. There were all times every single one of us didn't believe what we currently believe, okay? So you're, you're in a safe group that, that is there, okay? And so you can ask questions, you can explore. We want to encourage you to seek because this is the hope that you can have, 
in Christ if Jesus really did rise again. It's the hope of knowing that one day uh, there won't be any more cancer or COVID. It's the hope that we can know that there's, there's not going to be war forever or injustice or hatred or loneliness or broken relationships. That, that there's a day that's coming when we're, all of our lives are marked with love and joy and peace. All relationships are healthy. All society is just and our planet is flourishing. And we all want that, don't we? Because Jesus died and rose again, we can have that confident hope. Pastor and author Tim Keller in his book, Hope in Times of Fear, which I highly recommend, explains why the resurrection of Jesus gives us the confident hope that all will be made right. Here's what he says. He says, the the resurrection was a uh, miraculous display of God's power. But we should not see it as a suspension of the natural order of the world. Rather, it was the beginning of the restoration of the natural order of the world. The world as God intended it to be. Since humanity turned away from God, both the human and natural worlds have been dominated by sin and evil, disorder and disease, suffering and death. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he inaugurated the first stage of his restoring work that will result in the healing of all things. Let me read that last line again. When Jesus rose from the dead, he inaugurated the first stage of his restoring work that will result in the healing of all things. And friends, in this series, we're going to talk about that hope. Next week on Easter, we're going to get into why it's reasonable to believe that Jesus really did rise again, and we're going to talk about the implications of the hope that that gives each of us individually, personally. And then the week after Easter, we're going to uh, look at uh, the magnitude of all that Jesus uh, healed and set right as a result of his death and resurrection. But today... To begin the series, we're going to consider what Jesus' death and resurrection reveals about how God is healing all things. How he's healing all things. And I want to start here because uh, the means by which God is restoring the world is extremely counterintuitive. See, uh, it's common to think that if, if the world is ever going to be set right, it's going to happen by getting you know, the right people in power, you know, so that if we get the right people in power, then they can pass the policies and procedures that will lead to peace and prosperity. That was, that was a lot of peace. Did you catch, catch that? I didn't, even, I didn't even get tripped up. I just said it. So, boom. Um, but that, that is the common thought, isn't it? Like, if we can uh, get the right people in power, they can pass the right stuff, the right policies, then things will get better. I, uh, I don't know about y'all, but like, if y'all ever watched the show West Wing, 
You have any West Wing fans? Yeah. I love the show West Wing. I'm actually re-watching it all right now, and I've done this many times. I just love the show. And if you're not familiar with it, it's a show about the president and his staff, and most episodes kind of revolve around them trying to, to pass some kind of policy that they think is going to, like, if they could use their power, leverage their power to pass a policy that's going to help things get better, and they use their power to control the outcome of this to get things to be better. And it's a great aim. I mean, it's, it's a good, good desire to, to try to do what you can, to use your power to control things in order to make things better. Uh, but you know what's really surprising? Is that huh, that's not the way that God goes about changing things. Uh, God, uh, who is all-powerful, actually inaugurated the healing of the world and is continuing the process of healing the world uh, not through power, to control people, but instead through weakness to serve people. Through weakness. Is that not wild? And I don't know about y'all, but like, to be honest, I, I don't really, I'm not really drawn to that initially. Because like, weakness, like the idea of, of, of leveraging weakness to be the thing that changes things, I just, I... <laughs> That doesn't sound awesome. Because no, no one likes to be weak. No one likes to be considered weak. No one likes to be thought of as being on the margins or to be, you know, in a place of powerlessness. Uh, we certainly don't want to be called weak. And we really, honestly, in our culture in general, look down on those who are weak and powerless. But friends, listen, that's not the way of God. That is not the way of God. And from the beginning of the Bible story, what we see is God choosing to draw near to the weak and to work through those in weak positions in society to further his plan to bring about the restoration and the renewal of the world. For example, in the ancient world, and it's still practiced in some places today, but definitely uh, much more prominent in the, in the ancient world, they would, uh, families would follow the law, it's called the law of primogeniture. The law of primogeniture is the practice of giving the oldest son nearly all of the estate and wealth of the family, okay? And so to be the oldest son was always to be in the position of greatest power uh, within the family. But surprisingly, starting all the way back in Genesis, what we see is that God doesn't often move towards or work through the oldest son in the family, the one in most power. That uh, in just about every generation, what we see in Scripture, starting back again, like I said, in Genesis, God works through the younger son, the one in weaker position. It's Abel over Cain. It's Isaac over Ishmael. It's Jacob over Esau. It's uh, Judah it's, and Joseph over Reuben. It's interesting, right? I mean, think, think about Joseph, okay? Those who are, aren't familiar with Joseph's story, it's a wild story. You can read it in Genesis 37 through 50. Highly recommend it. It's a page turner. But uh, Joseph, he, he's one of the youngest in his family. I think he's 11th out of 12th son. He's definitely not the oldest son, okay? And his older brothers, they hate him. <laughs> and they hate him to the extreme measure. They actually sell him into slavery, and he's taken into Egypt, and he is there serving as a slave, and then he is wrongly, falsely accused of a crime, and he's thrown in a jail. 
Talk about being in an incredibly weak and powerless position, right? And yet, in that most weakest and powerless position, God does something amazing. Not despite Joseph's weakness, but through it. That for through a series of events that happen only as a result of him being in Egypt and being in prison, he ends up with the opportunity to counsel the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. And he counsels him on how to prepare for a severe famine. As a result, the lives of many, many, many people are saved, including the lives of his own family. Throughout Scripture, friends, this is what we see about the way, what we learn about the way of God. He draws near the weak and powerless. He moves through their weakness to bring healing and salvation. This is true for how God works through women throughout Scripture as well. I mean, just think about uh, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. Each of them was an outsider by the social standards of the time. Tamar was a widow that tricked her father-in-law into having sex with her. Again, uh, you should read your Bibles. It's, it's fascinating stuff in there. Rahab was a Gentile prostitute. Ruth was a, uh, a widow considered to be from a despised nation or race. And Bathsheba was the wife of another man, but then forced into an affair with King David. In the eyes of their culture, they were all viewed as being either morally, racially, or socially marginal. And yet each woman is included in the genealogy of Jesus because they were all Jesus' foremothers. That literally, the salvation in the world came through them. This is the subversive way of God, friends. He draws near to and he works through the people whom the powerful in this world reject. He furthers his good plan for the restoration of the world through the weak and the powerless. The author of the letter of Hebrews, uh, looking back on all the figures in, in, uh, the, in the history of Israel and recording the Old Testament, he sums up all the stories in this way. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32 says, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and about David and Samuel and the prophets who, through faith, conquered kingdoms and administered justice and gained what was promised and who shut the mouths of lions and quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword whose weakness was turned to strength. Whose weakness was turned to strength. Over and over again in Scripture, we see God choosing to work through the weak to save others, not just despite, but through their weakness, turning their weakness into strength. Why do you think God does this? Why does God repeatedly choose the less powerful people and to work his deliverance through their powerlessness and often their, their suffering? Do you think it's just because God really just loves the old underdog story? I mean, who doesn't love the underdog story, right? But no, I, I don't think that that's what it is. Now, Ed, he does this because each of these stories serve as a foretaste 
and a signpost pointing us towards God's ultimate saving and renewing work in Jesus Christ. Think about it. Did Jesus come in power or in weakness? Born in a manger to an unwed teenage girl. Born to parents who had to flee to Egypt as refugees to save his life. Growing up in Nazareth, a village of poor reputation and no prior significance. He began his ministry not by forming an army to overthrow the Roman oppressors, but by inviting a small group of people to follow him that included uneducated fishermen and a tax collector. And by his own admission, he had no place to lay his head, and he was financially supported and relying on a group of faithful women. He didn't spend time trying to get into the right social circles. He spent his time with tax collectors and sinners and the sick and with children. He didn't try to get accepted by the people in power. Instead, he was despised by those in power. And yet his reputation grew to the point that when he entered Jerusalem, uh, people uh, lined the streets, spread their cloaks, and waved palm branches and shouted, Hosanna, save us, King. Looking forward to Jesus being exalted to the throne. And yet... Matthew 21 and John 12, it tells us that Jesus comes in riding on a donkey, sign of humility, and he speaks of being lifted up in John chapter 12. He doesn't talk about a throne, but he points to the cross. And then after being betrayed by one of his disciples, he's tried in a kangaroo court, he's beaten, he's flogged, he's mocked, and he has... Nails driven into him as he is then crucified on a cross. Did Jesus come in power or in weakness? Apostle Paul answers that question in this way in Philippians 2. He says, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus clearly came in weakness, but friends, why? Why? It's because it was through Jesus' weakness that God would bring salvation and inaugurate the restoration of the world. See, Galatians 3.13 tells us that Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin, meaning the just curse and penalty for sin, is death. And so Jesus goes to the cross in our place, taking our curse and just punishment upon himself so that through his death we could have life, eternal life, life to the full, his life. See, Jesus' apparent uh, powerlessness was actually power used to serve others rather than power used to control others. 
And why would Jesus use his power to serve others instead of his power to control others? Best way I've ever heard it put is this. It's because he knows that to sacrifice power and love is to exert the power of love to bring about lasting change. It's because he knows that to sacrifice power in love is to exert the power of love to bring about lasting change. That's why the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. For in no other way could sin and death have been defeated, and no other way could hearts truly be transformed from the inside out, and no other way could the restoration of the world ever been initiated. He had to come in weakness. And so he did. He suffered and he died. He humbled himself by uh, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then that passage continues with these lines, therefore God exalted him. Therefore God exalted him. Therefore, as in, as a result of, not just in spite of his death, but because of it, God raised Jesus and exalted him. Why? Because God works through weakness to accomplish his restorative plan. What looks like defeat is the very means by which God brings about his greatest victory. It's the darkness of Good Friday that brings about the sunrise of Easter. This is the way of God, friends. The cross and the resurrection It's often called the great reversal. Anywhere Christ saves us through weakness by giving up power and succumbing to seeming defeat, but then he triumphs, not despite the weakness and loss of power, but because of it and through it. For when Jesus rose again, he rose as the conquering Savior who had overcome sin and death in order to bring about the healing and the restoration of our broken world. Stanley Hauerwas captured the beauty of Jesus' great reversal in this. He said, Jesus, who is life itself, submits to death so that death may be conquered once and for all. See, all the stories of little reversals in Scripture uh, where weakness is turned to strength point us towards the great reversal, the death and resurrection of the Son of God, where God accomplishes the ultimate victory, not through force, And power, but through weakness and service, that's how God is healing all things. Now, there are three reasons why I wanted to start this series with this teaching. Okay, And the first is this. It's because this highlights, as I said earlier, the way of God. This is how he's bringing about the healing and the restoration of the world. It highlights the way of God. And what we see about the way of God in this is that the way of God is beautiful. Is it not? That God himself is beautiful. That he's he's incredible. That who he is and, and what he does and how he does it is incredible. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's glorious. Yes, this is how God works. The Almighty doesn't use his power to control, but to serve. Through weakness, he triumphs. 
He sacrifices power and love in order to exert the power of love to bring lasting change, to defeat sin and death, to change us ultimately, and to change the world. How amazing is he? He's incredible. Y'all are either in awe or you're asleep, but I'm like, I'm wondering, like, are you hearing anything? You're just speechless? I'd understand if you are. And this is so good that this is who our God is, what he's like, how he functions. That's the first reason why I wanted to start with this in this series. The second reason why I wanted to teach on this today is because not only does this capture the way of God, but it also shines light on the way to God. See, other world religions teach that uh, there's a type of salvation that comes through good works and moral virtue, ritual observances, or transformation of consciousness, or something like that. But in contrast, Christianity teaches that we do not achieve salvation by summoning up our own strength to live a virtuous life. We receive salvation through the admission of our own what? Our own weakness. Our weakness and our inability to be good enough to live up to God's standards. To quote Tim Keller again, he says it this way. When Jesus calls us to take up our cross to follow him in Matthew 16, 24, it means that to be saved and changed by his great reversal, we must go through our own reversal. That just as he did not accomplish our salvation through the exertion of power, but through voluntary loss, so we receive this salvation not by summoning up our strength to achieve moral perfection, but by admitting our utter weakness, helplessness, and need. And not just as, not just as his weakness and shame, and just as his weakness and shame was the only way to real strength and glory, so our repentance... An acknowledgement of guilt and sin is the only way to the highest confidence and honor, the knowledge that in Christ we are accepted and delighted in by the Lord of all. As the way of God also reveals the way to God. We are brought to God not through our own power to measure up, but by admitting our weakness, our inability to measure up, and by reaching out to him in trust. That instead of attempting to ascend to God, we in faith reach out to a God who has descended to us to save us through his love and service and his death in our place. See, for he, according to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, became sin so that through his becoming sin, we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's through faith in Jesus, God turns our weakness into strength, into righteousness, into acceptance, into union with God. Finally, the, the last reason why I wanted to start this series with this is because I want you to see from the get-go that this is that the way of God is also the way to partner with God. See, the cross and resurrection, this what we call the, the great reversal, reveals the pattern for how we partner with God in his work to restore and heal the world. 
For we partner with God by practicing the way of Jesus. See, we're not going to change the world through exerting power, through forcing people to conform to our views or ways. That is not Jesus' way, and as his followers, it can't be ours either. In Jesus, we see that the way up is down. The way to true power is to give up power in order to serve. The way to true riches is to be radically generous with all that you have. And the way to lasting happiness is to uh, see, it's not to seek your own happiness so much as the happiness of others. Friends, that is how he saved the world and changed your life. And now it becomes the way of partnering with him in, the li- in his life-changing and world-restoring work. See, if we want to see Austin become more like heaven, we need to become more and more like Jesus. And Jesus moved to those in the margins. He didn't overly value the competent, the powerful, the brilliant, the wealthy, or the successful. It's not that he didn't care about those people. He absolutely did. He literally died for them. Many of us, we could say that he died for us. We fall in that category as the brilliant, as the powerful, as the successful. He loves us. He loves that, that group. But he didn't just, he didn't, and he doesn't place a higher value on that group. It said he moves towards the margins, towards the socially weak and vulnerable. He ate with them. He invited them to spend time with him. That was, that is his way. And so let us do the same, friends. Let us make room at our tables and our schedules to spend time with and get to know those in the margins of our society. That's, that's, this is why as a church, we highlight and encourage people to get involved in things like Helping Hand Home, which is foster care shelter here in High Park. This is why we promote uh, getting involved in things like Refugee Services of Texas. It's because Jesus moved to the margins. He valued them in a way that our culture doesn't. And if Austin's going to become more like heaven, we've got to become more like Jesus. Let's follow in kind. Those are two great ways to do it. There are many more. Find something that you love and are passionate about and run in that direction. Let us follow in the way of Jesus because it is the way of Jesus. In addition, Jesus didn't use his power to control others and force them to serve him, but he said he uses power to serve others. And so if we're going to be like Jesus, then too, let us use our power, not to get people to serve us, but to serve others. Now, if you're thinking, um, <laughs> what power, right? <laughs> I was writing this and thinking, okay, what, what power do I have? I don't feel like I have any power. But it's helpful to recognize uh, that in many, many cases, uh, resources often equate to power. And so if Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, then let us not consider the things that are rightly ours to be used to our own advantage either. Let us ask 
How can we use our money that we make, the time that we have, the personal belongings that we have, the skills that we have to serve others? This is the way of Jesus. And it's the way we partner with Jesus and his restorative work in our world. The work that he inaugurated and he will see to full completion. That is our assured hope. But in this time now, we can partner with him. And this is the way that we partner with him. Not by powering up, but by serving, by becoming weak in order to serve others. Um, before I started Midtown, um, I was on staff at a church called the Hill Country Bible Church of Pflugerville. And uh, it was a great church. And that church, lots of great, good people. One of my favorite was a guy named Chip Jennings. Chip Jennings uh, owned a auto repair shop. And he uh, got, felt just convicted, pulled by God in this area, saying, okay, uh, how, do you, how do you actually... Uh, reflect Jesus in serving, using the resources, the power that you have to serve, specifically to serve those in the margins of society. So he began praying about that, and he began talking to people and just trying to like, get ideas, how to do this, what this could look like for him, how he could do what Jesus would do. And so uh, after some time of prayer and processing with people, he decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to open up my shop on Saturdays once a month. The shop was usually closed on Saturdays. But he said, once a month, I will open up on Saturdays, and I will serve, I will fix the cars of single moms and widows for free. And he said, okay, I'm not going to advertise this. I'm just going to talk to my mechanics and let them know that I'd like to do this and see if there's anyone that in their lives and their spheres of influence that they know could benefit from this. And so he just told the guys about it and said, let me know if you know somebody that could benefit from this. And, and uh, there, quickly there was a very long list of people, big waiting list. And most of his mechanic guys that were worked for him I decided, hey, I, w- I want to do that too. I'll volunteer on Saturday once a month to, to do this so we can serve more people. And so he began doing this and sat in every month. It, there were women who would uh, break down in tears as uh, these guys uh, fixed their cars for free. And uh, often Chip would be asked, oh, why are you doing this? And Chip would say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. And I think if Jesus were a mechanic, this is what he would be doing. Because he came to be, he came to serve, not to be served. Friends, Now we're going to watch a movie. Oh. <laughs> Friends, th- that is the way of God. That is the way of Jesus. And as we, if we adopt the same pattern of living, we will do so as Jesus' partners As we sacrifice power and love, we will be exerting the power of his love 
which is the only power truly strong enough to change the world. See, through the great reversal, Jesus' death and resurrection, he inaugurated the restoration of the world, not despite weakness and loss of power, but because of it and through it. And as a result today, we can have a confident hope that one day all that is broken will be healed. We can know that things will get better, better than better. And so as we wait for the full renewal of the world, let us rejoice in what God has already secured for us and let us partner with him in the restoration work by practicing the way of Jesus here and now. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven.